Okay, I'm glad you're here. Um, I want to talk about something that's uh, something that's very kind of grounded and and uh, just about uh, belief um, and and uh, to give us sort of a kind of a an understanding of of of. Of, of the definition of belief, really, um, and and hopefully this will have a very uh, practical, direct uh, impact on us. Um, and then, uh, if you're still with me, maybe later on we'll we'll talk about something a little more way out and kabbalistic. But let's start with something uh, more uh, grounded and and uh, and certainly something we can apply to our lives. <clears throat> so. So let's just begin. We'll, we'll work up to the idea of belief, but let's just kind of um, kind of do our homework getting there. Um, I heard from Reb Shlomo. I think he said it in the name of the Rishner Rebbe, but I heard it from Reb Shlomo um, about the opening of uh, Parshas Bishalach. So remember, Bishalach is really it's it's really the Parsha of miracles. It's it's when we're leaving Egypt. So we've been working up to leaving Egypt for you know. Hundreds of years and many parshas, and now all of a sudden it's happening. And of course, Parshas Bishalach has uh, the splitting of the Red Sea and the manna coming down from heaven. So there's all sorts of miracles going on, and it's 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 an amazing, amazing parsha. Um, so we have a, a foundation, a claw from 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 the Gemara that says that when a a verse, a pasuk begins with the word Vayehi that it portends something negative, something negative is happening. So, so oddly, this Parsha, Parsha's Beshalach, which is, again, it's talking about the, the Jews are finally leaving Egypt. This is incredible. This is the best news ever. Begins with the word Vayahi. So this is a challenge. Like, why, why, why would it start with, with, with such a word, given the amazing positive thing that's going on? So, so, so Reb Shlomo said, that 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 if you look at the 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 pasuk itself, so it says Vayhi b'shalach paro. It happened when Paro sent out the people. Um, so and then the pasuk continues. So so he was saying in the name of the Rebbe that on some deep deep level, the people thought that it was Paro sending them out of Egypt, not God. You know, because it says Vayehi b'shalach paro. So when when paro sent them out, so that's where the Vayehi, that's where the that's where the the sad note comes from, and that can that can break your heart in a thousand pieces. You know, here Hashem is is taking us out of Egypt finally, and paro is is definitely on the ground chasing them out, going go already, go go. But on some deep level. The Jewish people are experiencing this rescue, this salvation, coming from the hands of Paro, not, not from Hashem. So, I wanted to add to this Torah. So that's where that Torah ends. I wanted to add to it, because if you finish the Pasuk, I'll read you the whole Pasuk in English. It happened when Paro sent out the people, that God did not lead them by the way of the land of the Plishtim, the Philistines, because it was near, that was closer. For God said, perhaps the people will consider when they see a war and they will return to Egypt. So hopefully that's clear, but just just to explain it for one quick second, 
there was a direct path from Egypt to, to Israel, but we didn't take that direct path. We took a roundabout path because to take the direct path means that we would have confronted the Plishtim, and then they probably would have waged war against us, and the Jewish people would have gotten scared and run back to Egypt. So God took us, avoided that for us. So maybe you can put together the first part of the Pasuk as we were saying it, right? That people in their hearts felt that it was Paro who was sending them out and use that to explain the second part of the verse. Meaning to say, if we saw a war, we would have gotten scared and run out. In other words, because we thought that it was Paro who was sending us out, then if we're waging a war against the police team, who says we're going to win the war? But if it's God who's sending us out, then God can take us on the most direct path because we have nothing to be afraid of. Because we know it's God who sent us out. So what do we have to be afraid of the police team for? But if we think that it's Paro who's sending us out, then we have to be afraid of everything, right? So, so this is um, a practical lesson in, in our own lives. And which is really to the best of our abilities to stay focused on the idea that everything is coming from Hashem. And you see this theme throughout the entire Parsha of where is the salvation coming from? And you see it here in the very beginning of the Parsha. Is it Paru who's sending us out or is it Hashem who's sending us out? Obviously it's Hashem who's sending us out. But you see these choices in terms of belief that God is giving us to this very day, but throughout the entire Parsha. I'll give you another example, which is with um, Baltzaphon, that by that God um, destroyed all of the idols of Egypt, but he left one standing in the middle of the desert, this, this idol called Baltzaphon, because he wanted to give the Egyptians the opportunity to think that, you know what? God is pretty strong. He's pretty much destroyed our entire empire, but he didn't destroy Baltzaphon, so ah, so there is one thing stronger than God, Baltzaphon. So in other words, he gave them the opportunity to, to either choose belief in Hashem or to still hold on to their idolatry. I'll give you another example. Um, it says right in the Torah itself that Hashem sent a strong wind in order to part the Red Sea. In other words, Moshe picks up his staff and he holds up his staff and the waters like begin to part. It was over the course of the night. Like a wind, a strong wind was blowing the entire night. And um, Hashem was working this incredible miracle. But he was also preserving our free choice that we could say, oh, you know, it was a windy day. <laughs> right? We have, we have that ability. We have that ability. I'll give you another example in terms of contemporary terms so that you can really understand how far-reaching this is. Science today. Science is unbelievable. It's, it's fantastic. And um, a lot of people create 
what I think is a, a false debate, it's a very real debate, but I, I think ultimately at its root it's a false debate, between, well, what's right? Is, is the Torah right or is science right? As though, as though the two of them are arguing. There's only one power in the world. All there is is God. And God who created the world also created science. So what is the debate? Either science is not understanding what the Torah is actually saying, right? So there can't be a disagreement because it's only one power who's created both things. So how can they be in conflict with each other? All science is coming to do is to explain the details of what Hashem is doing. That's all what science is doing. Or to put it another way, the way Rabbi Nachman, um, I heard in his name, says it, Torah is, 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 is explaining the why. Science is explaining the how. Right? Science is just explaining the process. But Torah is giving you the reason for things. Right? Science is an attempt to do that. Science just tells you, like, this is interacting with this, and it's this many parts this, this many parts that, and the actual, you know, the actual dynamics of it. But the, 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 the Torah behind it, the reason behind it, this is the purpose behind it. This is, this is the realm of, of Torah. Um, so, so what we have to understand is, and I think that um, the Red Sea and, and science are, are, are a very good counterpoint to understanding this, is that the greater, God will always preserve our free choice. This is one of the essential components of the creation of the world and the purpose of human beings is that we have the ability to choose to recognize God and to choose to serve him or not. And to the extent that we exercise our free choice in order to choose God, this is the glory of the human being. This is the glory of the human being. Angels don't have this ability because angels have such a radically, quantumly higher understanding of godliness because they don't have any physicality. They don't have a Yetzirah. They don't have any negative inclination. They have such a clear view of Hashem that they don't have any free choice. So it's sort of like there's an exchange. On the one hand, you get a, a much greater view of God. On the, on the downside, you lose your ability to serve Him in a more meaningful way. Because the ability to overcome doubt, negativity, laziness, whatever it is, disinterest, and to do something positive... This is something that brings tremendous light into the world, a tremendous redemption into the world. And we all have the ability to do this. But God will always preserve our free choice. Now you see this, and we'll get back to this comparison between the splitting of the sea and science in a moment. But you see this in the very first letter of the Torah itself. Because the Bez of Breshi, remember Bez is the Gematria too, and, and, and Breshis, this is the, the first word in the entire Torah. So this is our, and the Torah is the blueprint of all reality. So our introduction to all of reality is beginning with the word Breshis, and Breshis is beginning with the letter Bez, and Bez is the number two. In other words, the very first thing that God is telling us is that you're going to be in a world of duality, of two-ness, where it seems like you don't see the unity of everything. Because the deeper truth of everything is the unity that exists in all things. 
Remember, this is one of the reasons I heard from Rabbi Blech that one of the reasons why we put our hands over our eyes, we close our eyes when we say Shema Yisrael, because what we're doing is we're closing our eyes to all the multiplicity that surrounds us, all the different impulses and, and, and the illusion of different powers that are surrounding us and bombarding us. We close our eyes to that and we're tapping into the oneness that's informing everything, right? So that's, when we say Shema, we're closing our eyes and we're saying, oh, it's all one. It's all one, right? But as soon as we get into this world, we're into the world of, where this is, um, mystically, they call this the world of separation. There is no separation, but there's the illusion of separation. And that's already where the letter Bez comes in, because Bez already means two. It's the number two. Seems like there's this world, there's this, and there's something else. Is it? What's going on? And remember, Bayes also stands for free choice. Because I can do this, or I can do that. That's two things, right? So God put into the fabric of reality. Remember, the first letter of the Torah is already introducing us to what the whole DNA of, of life is, basically, and of this world is. God is already implanting within this world our ability to choose one thing or another. That's one of the most primary things about this world and about our lives, our ability to choose. And God is preserving at every turn our ability to choose. He's guarding our choice. Now that means if he's going to guard our choice, if he's going to do a miracle, he's got to give us a very, very good reason to believe it's not a miracle at the same time. So now we've got probably the greatest open miracle in the entire Torah, the splitting of the Red Sea, and the Torah itself is telling us a strong wind blew all night long. So you can say, wow, you know, it was we just lucked out. Happened to be there was an army there and we were trapped against the, the water. You know, one of my favorite stories when my first son was very young, I, I was, you know, trying to give over this, the splitting of the sea in a, in a sort of a, in an exciting way, or I was trying to anyway. And, you know, he was just this little boy. I don't know how old he was, but he was very young. And, um, you know, we were in the, the little dining room area of our, of our, of our place. And, and, uh, and I was kneeling down to, to, to spell it out to him. And I, I said to him, you know, you know, here, here we were, and we were, we were, we were trapped against the sea, you know, and, and the Egyptian army was coming right toward us. And on this side, wild animals were coming to attack us. And on that side, wild animals are running to attack us. Where do you go? And he said, to the kitchen. <laughs> <laughs> so there was, <laughs> there, was, there was no place to go. And then the sea splits. So did the sea split because God made the sea split? Or did the sea split because there was a strong wind blowing all night? Well, the sea split because God made the sea split. God made a miracle for us. But God, even at the most, most revealed aspect of his power, is giving us free choice to believe that it was the wind. And this is what's going on today in terms of science. Because science is giving us the most 
awesome, awesome, awesome revelations of God's miraculousness in terms of everything, every aspect of everything, in technology, in terms of astronomy, in terms of molecular, molecular biology, in terms of subatomic physics. We're seeing the greatness of God, the absolute greatness of God. But then God says, wait a second, I can't just reveal all of this because if I just reveal all of this, I'm going to take away your free choice. You're going to realize how close I am, how I'm engineering every particle of every single detail. So you know what? I'm not going to call it religion. I'm not going to call it Kabbalah. I'm not going to call it Torah. I'm not going to call it Hasidus. You know what I'm going to call it? I'm going to call it science. <laughs> and I'm going to reveal it through people who stand on chairs and say, there is no God. That way, I can preserve your free choice while absolutely showing you how I'm running the world in every single detail. And I'll leave it up to you, whatever you want to do. <laughs> Right? It will be up to you. You can recognize that this is all coming from one power, from one source. Or you can exercise your free choice by saying, oh no, it was the wind. There was a very strong wind. Didn't you check the weather report? Very strong wind. There were, in fact, you know what? At the Red Sea, there was a wind alert. <laughs> Ever hear that? That's always one of my favorite weather reports. There's a wind alert. Right? <laughs> so... So that means hold on to your kippah. <laughs> so this is what it is. This is what it is. All right. So belief. So let's go deeper now in terms of belief, in terms of us, in terms of our own lives. So I saw something. Um, we talked about it a little bit, but but let's go uh, more into it. Uh, there's a pasuk, a verse from the Torah that we that we read before <clears throat> we talk about the splitting of the Red Sea. Every day we read, um, um, it's called Shira Sayam, which is the song that we sang in celebration after the sea was split. <clears throat> and of course, the, uh, just a, a great note about just the holiness and greatness of women. Um, after we sang this song, the women sang a separate song, and it says that they took out their musical instruments. And everyone's asking, wait, they're in the middle of the desert. Like, where did they get musical instruments from? And it says that they brought them from Egypt because they knew they were going to be redeemed. They knew that there was going to be a great redemption. So they brought these musical instruments in anticipation of singing great songs in praise to God. It's an amazing, amazing testimony about the amuna, the faith of, of Jewish women. Okay. So, but, but um, there was a song that... that that, that, that we sing called Shiraz Hayam. This is, you know, the big uh, song that we sang right afterwards. And before, before we go into the, the song itself, there are a few verses, very interesting verses. It says, Hashem saved on that day Israel from the hand of Egypt, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Um, Israel, and by the way, that's a, that's a separate miracle that happened, where... And this is amazing just to show you how, how um, psychologically astute and, um, or, or put a better way, how, how sensitive God is to, to us and to our frame of mind. Because, because if you escape a danger, say if someone's trying to uh, attack you, God forbid, and you escape from that person, 
but still you're worried he'll catch you another time, right? So you are happy that he didn't get you, but still you're worrying about him. So, so had the Jews just sort of narrowly escaped um, the Egyptians, we would have still been worrying about them. So God made a separate miracle where he drowned them. But more than that, you know, human beings who still worry. But how do we know they didn't get away? So God made a whole separate miracle. People don't talk about it so much, but if you look in the Rashi, it's right there. Where God flung the bodies out of the water so that we could see that they all drowned. In other words, we didn't just think, well, you know, I didn't see them. They went into the water, but now I don't see them. Maybe they escaped. No, he flung the, water, the bodies up into the air so that we could see that all of our enemies were gone and that we could relax. Now, we didn't have to think about it. A very, very amazing thing. Um, so it says, God saved on that day Israel from the hand of Egypt, and Israel saw the, Egypt, the Egyptians dead on the seashore. That's what that means. That's what that means. Israel saw the great hand that Hashem inflicted upon Egypt, and the people had Yira for Hashem, right? That's everything from, from, from fear to awe, right? That's a, it's a whole spectrum. There's a higher Yira and the lower Yira. And they had faith in Hashem and in Moshe, his servant. So, so that's, that's a bit of a, of a question, and everyone is asking this question. What does it mean that we had faith in Hashem and in Moshe? Because seemingly, you know, you had the whole ten miracles at, uh, of, the, of, the, of the plagues and everything like this. And, and uh, uh, of course, we, the, all the Jewish people had the Masorah, the tradition going back from Avram, Yitzhak, and Yaakov and everything like that. Uh, we didn't believe in Hashem already? Now it says we believed in God and in Moshe? So, so this is, this is, this is, so what, what is this referring to? Um, well, we had a deeper faith. We had a, we had a deeper faith. Um, I heard one explanation from Rabbi Grossman. He said that up until now, we had seen God punishing the Egyptians for being bad, but we hadn't experienced him doing anything good for us. So we knew that God was against the Egyptians because they had been so cruel. And they were getting punished for their cruelty. But that doesn't mean he's necessarily on our side. But when we saw this miracle, we saw, oh no, God is actually doing it all for us. Okay, so that's, it's, it's actually, it, it's, this deserves uh, much more conversation. But let's leave it there for now because I want to make a different point, really. And I want to talk about something that the Rashbam says. And I believe that this is something that's very important for all of our lives in terms of our relationship with God, right? Which, by the way, is, that's, that's all of life right there. Because, you know, I don't want to put it in a negative way, but these are the words that are coming to me. You know, in life, a person could lose absolutely everything. We shouldn't lose anything. We should have everything that we need. But it's possible that a, a person could lose absolutely everything. But the one thing that you'll never lose as long as you live is your relationship with God. No one can take away your relationship with God. No one can take that away. They can throw it like, you know, Anatoly Sharansky. There, there's 
famous, famous thing about him sitting in solitary confinement in the Soviet Union and basically laughing and saying, they think they can take away my relationship with God. They, you know, these fools. Right? So, so this is something that you have above everything else. And it's the core of our lives. It's the core of absolutely everything. So we have to get it right. We have to get it right. We have to. And when it talks about amuna in Hashem and belief in God, this is, this is the inside of the inside. The inside of the inside of the relationship with God is belief in God. So we have to make sure that we get the belief aspect right. So if this is saying, now we believed in God, well, this is going to be the headquarters of a very important set of teachings, right? Like, well, how do you do it? What, what does it mean? So, so <clears throat> at this moment, if I were to read this, and I were just to tell you my opinion, I would tell you something very basic and, and whatever the opposite of deep is. I would say to you, <laughs> is, I would say, well, they believed in God. Why did they believe in God? Because they saw that God split the sea. So that must mean that God exists. And so they believed in God because God did this open miracle. And so, of course, there's a God because God did this. So that means God exists. That, that's what I would probably tell you that it means. But that's not even like scratching the surface of what this is saying. So the Rashbam says something unbelievable. Listen to this. He says, you know what it means that they believed in God, that we believed in God at this moment? He says, listen carefully. He said, at this moment, we believed that God would provide for us in the desert. That sounds like, wait a second. I thought we were talking about the Red Sea right now. Were we just talking about the Red Sea? He's saying that at this moment, we understood that God, who is with us and who exists, we believe that God is going to continue to provide for us. In other words, it's a future-based belief that, we, that, that, that God ingrained into us at this moment. The understanding that God is going to take care of us, even though you had two and a half million people approximately in the desert with no food. Can you imagine? That's, what is that? Two and, that, you know, every once in a while, someone will ask me, you know, are there, does God have a sense of humor? Right? And I don't know how to answer that. God created humor. Does God have a sense? God created humor. But, if, but there is, as far as I have run across, one, what I would say, can only be described as a joke. One joke in the, in the, in the Chumash that I'm aware of, which was, when the Jews are in this place where they're about, they feel, we, we feel as though we're about to be killed by the Egyptians, right? The Jews say to, to Moshe, there weren't any graves in Egypt? <laughs> you had to bring us out here? <laughs> now, if that is not the definition of sarcasm. <laughs> I... I had been misquoting that Pusuk. I thought it had said there weren't enough graves in Egypt. You had to bring us here. But it doesn't say that. I, I, I double-checked and then I triple-checked. It said there weren't any graves in Egypt. 
In other words, this whole thing was this massive suicide mission. What are, you, what are you doing? You're taking two and a half million people in the middle of the desert with no food? And you're expecting us to survive? So what happened? What happened by the splitting of the Red Sea? We realized that God can absolutely do anything and that God was going to provide for us in the desert. And that is giving us a very strong working definition of belief in terms of our own lives. See, a lot of people just define, like, do you believe? Do I believe? What does that mean? Well, do I believe that God exists? That's what I would think most people would define belief in God is. Do you believe that there is a God? Do you believe that he exists? Right? So in other words, listen very carefully. You can believe that God exists while simultaneously believing that God is not going to take care of you in the future. And according to the Rajbam, that's not belief at all. This is a very, very, very far-reaching idea right now. It's a very, very far-reaching idea. To believe in God, to believe in God, must include to believe that he's going to take care of you in the future. There's a, there's a, there's a, there's a, I think it's a medrash or it's certainly a parable. I heard it from Rabbi Wine many years ago. He says that, um, that it it talks about uh, a a person who's riding on a, a donkey, right? And while he's riding on the donkey, he's holding in both of his hands, heavy suitcases, right? Heavy bags, Right? And so someone comes up to him and says, listen, as long as you're going to get on the donkey, why don't you also put the bags on the donkey? (laughs) Right? Why are you getting on the donkey, but you're carrying the bags? What's the whole point of the donkey? The donkey is supposed to carry everything, right? So if you're getting on the donkey, already put the bags on the donkey too. So in other words, if you're going to believe in God... You're going to believe in God, but at the same time, you're going to have to hold on to all of your worries? (laughs) If you're already believing in God, you might as well believe that God is going to take care of everything as well. All right, so, so, so we can't, we can't take this teaching out of context. We can't say, oh, so therefore... Red lights are for everyone else except for me because God is going to take care of me as I go 90 miles an hour through every red light. Right? And God is going to pay my rent. I don't have to pay my rent anymore. I'm so glad I came to this year. I've been paying my rent for nothing. <laughs> God is going to fill my refrigerator. Right? You know, there's, a, there's an old joke about a guy who he... Uh, anyway, I'll say that. So, <laughs> we don't need it to make the point. A person has to put in their effort. A person has to be a grown-up. A person has to be responsible. A person has to be a mensch. At the same time, though, there are levels of worries that a person doesn't have to take on. Because if they believe, they can, they, can, they, can, they can understand that God is going to 
take care of these things and that they can trust in God. Just like the people at that point, two and a half million people going out into oblivion, understood and trusted that God was going to take care of them. And that's exactly what happened. And there was no food. There was no food. So what did God do? He rained food from the sky. <laughs> and you know, the, the Chasm Sofer brings that the bracha that they made on the mana was Hamotzi Lechem Min Hashemayim. God who brings forth food from the heaven. Right? Usually we say Hamotzi Lechem Min Haaretz. But we said Hamotzi Lechem Min Hashemayim. That was the bracha over the man. You know? Because God can do anything. God can absolutely do anything. And um, I, I was looking at, at this word for, uh, for um, emuna, right? And, and very interesting, if you look at the word for emuna, because the man, the man itself, this bread that fell from heaven, was something that um, was a test. You know, you know, it's, it's, it, people don't understand that the manna was a test. But it says it, like when God introduces the fact that he's going to bring manna, it says it right in the Torah. I'm going to bring manna to test them. Because and that, that aspect of the manna has been lost to um, uh, contemporary thought. Because a lot of times if there's a phrase, I don't know if you've ever heard anyone say it, I, I've heard it before, where if something wonderful happens out of the blue, people say, mana from heaven. Mm-hmm. Right? That's an expression, meaning to say that you've gotten a, 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 a surprise-free divine gift, wonderful gift that came out of nowhere. Right? But it's divorced from the context of the verse in the Torah, which says, I'm going to bring you mana to test you. So what was the test? What was the test? It sounds like it was just a great free ride. Right? We didn't have to worry about food for 40 years. What, what, was the, what was the test? The test was, and I, I imagine it was probably harder in the beginning, but who knows? Maybe it remained a test throughout the 40 years. I don't know. The test was that you just got that day's worth of food. And if you saved it over for the next day, it rotted. It would like turn into worms, basically. So the test was, do you believe that God is providing for you in the future? It's just what the Rashbam is saying, right? So the, the man is very much connected to this idea that we believed. Do you believe? Do, will, you, will you finish your, your food for that day with the belief that God is going to provide for you for the next day? And of course, on Friday, God gave us a double portion because we didn't gather it on Shabbos. On Shabbos, it, it didn't come down, right? And on, fr- on Friday, the double portion would last to Shabbos, but any of the weekday ones wouldn't, wouldn't last, right? So, so mana, the fact that we, like, like succeeded in this. This implanted in our national DNA, in our national consciousness, 
this very, very deep abiding belief in God. This was an amazing thing. And you know, Rabbi Akiva says that what was man? What was it? It's in, in Gomorrah Yuma. That man was actually that angels eat light, right? And that this was crystallized light. That's what man was. Condensed light. Right? It was the food of angels. This is Rabbi Akiva. So, and as a result, when we ate it, it was completely absorbed within our body. And there was nothing left over. There was no waste product from it. It was completely absorbed. So, so, so the man was coming to further increase our amuna, Because when we ate it, we had to believe that God was going to provide for us for the next day. Now with that in mind, let's look at the word amuna. Amuna means faith. Right? Amuna has the word man in it. Right? Isn't that interesting that the word faith has the word man in it? <laughs> Not only that, but the remaining letters are man and then the letters vavhe. Now you know when you work with the yudke vavke, yudke, the first two top letters of Hashem's holiest name, stand for the upper regions of heaven, right? The vavhe deals with the lower regions, the lower dimensions that are revealed. So you have Amuna, faith, right, is the word man, vavhe, because the man fell to this dimension, and the last letter is aleph, which is the number one, which is two yuds and a vav, which add up to 26, which is the yudke vavke. Aleph stands for Hashem. So the man fell to this dimension to give us faith in the one, the only one, the aleph, God. So you've got in, in the word Amuna an entire pictogram of the entire falling of the mana and the faith that it instilled that we had in God. And then God says, take the mana and put it next to the luchos, next to the Torah. And so there was a jar of mana next to the Ten Commandments, which were, you know, the, the whole Torah. Because there's that connection. If you want belief, if you want to, if you want to eat man, learn Torah. You open up the Torah and your soul is eating man. Right? It's just shining the light of man into your soul. And your soul is eating, you know? Torah is food, but you're getting like the man, you're getting it on an angelic level. You're getting the or Torah, the light of Torah is shining into your neshama. You know, plants, plants eat light. What's photosynthesis, right? Right, they're able to absorb nutrients from the light. Okay, they get it from the water and the soil as well, but they also get it from the light. You can be, you can, if you get divine light, you're, it's like food. You know, it says Moshe Rabbeinu didn't eat for 40 days on Harsina. It says right in the Torah itself, he didn't eat or drink. Because he was, sh- he had the, he was shining with the light of God. God was feeding him, right? It was like the most divine version of photosynthesis. <laughs> the most heavenly version of it. 
So, so, so belief in God, belief in God when it comes to the Torah's understanding is so much more than just believing that God exists. It's so much more than that. It's belief that God is going to take care of you in the future. It's belief that God is good. If you don't believe that God is good, I don't know if according to the Torah you believe in God at all. And this is one of the most essential, you know, if you have a kind of a spiritual checklist or a spiritual to-do list, you know, believe that God is good, check. <laughs> you know, I've got to definitely get that down. Because this is the emiss. <clears throat> this is the emiss. You won't, this is the truth. You won't be able to live in the real world. You won't be able to actually talk take part in, in reality unless you understand that the motivation between, behind everything is God's goodness. Now, a lot of times you say, well, well, wait a second. You know, it seems like there's all sorts of violence and all sorts of horribleness going on. How do you reconcile that with God's goodness? Well, then you have to get a little deeper. You have to understand all the stuff that's going on, all the different dynamics. First of all, as, as, as we say all the time, but it can't be stated enough, you know, everyone wants to know if there's a God and he's good, then why is the world so messed up? And so the answer is because the world's not finished yet. Right? And that's why we're here, right? We're here to be partners with God in terms of finishing up the world. And we do that with the Torah and the mitzvot. <coughs> Right? That's, that's, that's what's going on. We're finishing, up, we're finishing up the world. We're perfecting the world. That's our job in this world. It's not done yet. The world's not done yet. It's a very, very big, important understanding. Another thing is, is that if a person experiences hardships, you have to understand, it's, it, we, we, we experience them as punishments. We experience them, but it's, there's something much deeper going on as you were getting to before. They're tikkunim. These are, these are fixings. These are fixings. These are God fixing us. Right? And, uh, and, and sometimes, it's, sometimes it's not easy. Often it's not easy. Maybe all the time it's not easy. You know? And, and, and there's all sorts of stuff going on, you know? There's stuff from past lives. There's stuff from this life. There's stuff that are going to be not even for us now, but for us later or for our children or for our grandchildren, right? For our community. There's all, all sorts of dynamics going on, you know? But we have to understand that it's all coming from God who's good. There's another aspect, which is to understand that God has a plan for each one of us. Right? If you, to believe in God, you have to also believe that God has you personally in mind. You know, one of my favorite, my favorite, one of my favorite teachings, and this, I, I read this at a time that 
you know, I, you know, I was going through something, and it, it, it helped me a lot. The Kohen, the Kohen, one of the jobs of the, the Kohen was to um, diagnose um, Tsaras. Tsaras, it's translated as leprosy, but it's, it was, it, that's just an approximation. And we don't have it today. Which, and for a, a fascinating reason, that we're not spiritually sensitive to be vulnerable to this right now. In other words, because we're so desensitized, we're not even eligible to get this malady, <laughs> which is really kind of like, okay, the good news is <laughs> you don't have to do any homework. The bad news is we're not even letting you into school. You know, <laughs> so, you know, it's kind of a double-edged sword there. But anyway, in the time where we were on the level to be able to have this illness, as strange as that sounds, um, there was one thing where there would be like a white hair, and if the white hair were coming out of this particular sore, then, then if the Kohen looked at it and said that it was Saras, at that moment it, would be, it was officially Saras. Up until then, even though um, you know, uh, anatomically you may have had the identical thing, it wasn't Saras until the Kohen looked at it and said, it's Saras. Okay? Which is interesting in and itself, but that aside. So, this Kohen is broke, and he's like leaving Israel, right? He's going to leave the country. And, um, and the person says to him, you know, you're in charge of looking at the placement of every single hair on a person's body to show you that God is mindful of every single, the placement of every hair on a person's body? And you think that God's forgotten about you? God knows where every hair on a body is. And you think God has forgotten about you? Like, when I read that, I was like, whoa. Okay, so I guess God has not forgotten about me. You know? Because we have this fear. Somehow, there's so much going on. Somehow. (laughs) Somehow my name, like, on the index card, on the cosmic bulletin board, just kind of fell off and, you know, slid behind Mars. You know, Mars is blocking my name. You know, so God... Yeah, I mean, if he knew I was there, I'm sure he'd be taking care of me, but, you know, kind of. So that's not the case. So God has a plan for each one of us, right? So we have to believe that God is providing for us for the future. We have to believe that God is good. We have to believe that God exists, and that we have to believe that God has an individual knowledge and plan and relationship with us. Right? And these are, these are, and then, okay, then we get into the more detailed ideas, you know, in terms of understanding that we believe um, in reward and punishment, right? And we believe in Mashiach, and we believe that Moshe's prophecy of the Torah is exact, 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 and that there will never be a replacement for the Torah, and there will be never a replacement for Moshe Rabbeinu, ever. As Reb Shlomo pointed out, based on the Rambam, there will never be a prophet greater than Moshe Rabbeinu, including Mashiach. Mashiach will be greater in other, word, in, 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 in other areas, but not in prophecy. Right? You know, what's so 
without bashing other religions, because you know we're all every every religion is trying to lift up and 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 improve their people and make them into better people, you know. But nonetheless, just as Jews, we have to understand something. Both Christianity and Islam both say the Torah was revealed to the Jewish people at Mount Sinai. You know? They, they both say that. that. That's something that should give us a lot of strength. Never before and never again has any religion had the chutzpah, right? The, 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 the gall to say that God spoke to two and a half million people simultaneously and they all heard the same thing. Because it's so easily disproven. Why would any religion like dare to say a statement like that unless it happened? And is it coincidental that subsequent religions have said, oh no, just one person got the word? God who can reveal himself to two and a half, to the entire world simultaneously, right? Why would he just reveal himself after that to just one person? Right? But that question aside, the Torah which was revealed at Mount Sinai, which other religions base themselves on, this Torah says you can't add to the mitzvahs and you can't subtract from the mitzvahs. So how can you base your religion on the, revolution, the, the revelation at Sinai, which in itself makes your religion impossible? There, there's a very profound very profound problem there if you're a believing truth-seeking person you have to say well wait a second my religion says that this happened and this says my religion is impossible so at that point call your local rabbi <laughs> right I mean because if you want to be for real anyway my goal is not to turn a believing person into an unbelieving person. Everyone's trying to do their best, right? But, but if a person really wants to get to the core of what it means, one God, and to understand that, that the Torah itself includes all peoples, because we have something called the Sheva Mitzvahs B'nai Noach, which is, which is the universal mitzvahs, the seven universal mitzvahs, which are for all people. And we're all God's children. And we're all precious. We're all precious. And we're all brothers and sisters. So, God forbid, please don't misunderstand my words that I'm trying to knock anyone or saying anyone is, is less than God's children. We're all God's children. Right? We're all entitled to this status. And we all have to get along. But there is a concept of truth. There is a concept of truth. And the journey of this world is to be able to recognize the truth without killing each other. Right? And, you know, this is, if you pick up any newspaper from any era in the history of the world, <laughs> you'll see that this isn't so easy. It's not so easy. It's not so easy to love each other. Right? Okay. I want to go further. Because this is now getting into what I was mentioning before. We're going to go deeper within this subject, but at the same time we're going to be switching subjects. See, because how do you do it? How do you do it? How do you recognize that there's a truth, that there's a oneness, 
right? That there's one organizational structure that informs the universe, right? People want to say, well, it's whatever I say or whatever it is. But if there is a creator, and there is, and there is a structure to the universe, and open up any textbook from any field of science, from astronomy, right, to meteorology, to DNA, to anatomy, to physics, look into anything and you'll see that there is a divine structure which is not random, that doesn't change every single day. There is a structure to the universe. There is a oneness and an order that informs totality. And that, of course, was created by God. So, how do you reconcile the fact that there actually is a truth and still get along with the person who doesn't hold by your truth? So, in order to do that, you know what you need? You need a good heart. <laughs> so, let's, I want to talk about the heart right now. Okay, and I'm going to read you a uh, something from Perkeavos. This is um, chapter two, verse thirteen. So, um, Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai, who is the head of the Jewish people at this point, he says, "Go out and discern which is the proper way to which a person should cling." So, his top students all chimed in, like, "What's what's the?" What is the single most important thing to, 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 to have? Which path, right? So Rabbi Eliezer says, a good eye, right? Very hard to have a good eye. Very, very hard to have a good eye because jealousy is so, um, so uh, rampant. It's like this virus that somehow everyone has. Everyone believes if you have something good, deep down you took it from me. You know, it's a horrible thing, right? You know, can you imagine? Can you imagine? Jealousy, the definition I heard from Reb Shlomo, the definition of jealousy is thinking that someone took your portion, right? Can you imagine that deep down, if you look at someone's kids and you say, oh, really what you're thinking is, those are my kids. He took them from me. <laughs> Does that make any sense? You see someone riding the, down the street with a fancy car, right? That Mercedes. That's my Mercedes. He took it from me, right? Or someone's got some kind of job, some fancy job that you like. That's my job. He took it from me. He, no, no, no one took anything from you. God gave it to them, and God can also give it to you. There's no shortage in heaven of blessings. There's no shortage. So a good eye is very hard to have. And if you want to uproot a bad eye, and by the way, I heard in the name of the Chedush that it says that he, it took him seven years to get rid of his bad eye or to, or to have a good eye. I don't think he, I think he said it in that way. But in order to really work on having a good eye, it took him seven years. The Chedush that's the first Gary Rebbe, right? You know who the Chidush Rim was? Chidush Rim was one of the greatest people that ever lived. So you would think, oh my goodness, he was born with a good eye. He was born with ten good eyes, right? Mm-hmm. Like, like, that's something he had to work on? 
So if he had to work on that, and he said for seven years, if that's something he had to work on, what about the rest of us? And, and, and you see it's something that, it's, it's a process. It doesn't just, okay, today I'm having a good eye, and oh, I solved the problem. Right? It's, it's right? And, and, and I heard Reb Shlomo say that if, uh, that, the de- that a person has no concept of what joy is unless you can be happy for someone else. Right? Like, a person should work on the idea if they hear good news about someone else. This one got engaged. That one had a kid. That one got a job. That we should experience as good news. Like something good happened to you. Right? Because that wasn't your job. It wasn't your kid. It wasn't your mate. It was, it was for them. Right? So one of the exercises is to experience it as something good just happened to you. Because we all share the same soul. So on a very profound level, something good did just happen to you. It's not made up. It's real. Okay. So having said all that, you probably think the greatest thing you can have is a good eye, right? But Rabbi Yeshua says, a good friend. That's the best thing to have. That's what you should pursue, having a good friend. And a good friend is awesome. A good friend, you know, it says that a person can't free himself from prison. Right? Like there's a, there are pits that a person can fall into that they can't take themselves out of. You need another person in order to get you out. Right? So a good friend is someone who can, who can save you. Right? Who can be with you, who can celebrate with you, who can be happy with you. You know, I heard Reb Shlomo say something so intense. You know, he said that um, a good friend, you ready for this? This is heartbreaking. A good friend is someone who you can tell good news to. Right? Because a lot of people, you know, something good happens to you. You're afraid to tell someone else because you think it's going to make them jealous. It's going to make them feel bad. I, I, something good happened to me. Now you're going to hate me because something good happened to me. It didn't happen to you. Right? That's, that's a very real concern that many, many people have. So a good friend is someone who you can tell some good news to. Can you imagine? Because you know that they love you that they want something good for you, that they're not going to be diminished by your success. So that's, that's, that's something very beautiful, a good friend, a good friend. Right? And you know, in halacha, it just comes to me right now, in halacha, you're not allowed to say amen to your own blessing. <laughs> right? I can't say, break priya geffen, amen! <laughs> right? So who's going to say amen? Right? You need a good friend. Okay. A good neighbor. Right? That's what Rabbi Yossi says, a good neighbor. A good neighbor is is also um, uh, uh, interpreted, not just someone who's good, who lives next to you. Because you see, people are very much influenced by their environments. Right? And, uh, you know, if you, um, if you live in a, a frat house, right, 
you're going to have like, you know, what are you going to have for breakfast? You're going to pour some Frosted Flakes and then you'll pour some beer in your Frosted Flakes, right? Because that's like, what else do you have for breakfast? <laughs> and then maybe you'll just skip the Frosted Flakes, right? <laughs> like, you ever hear the expression, wake and bake? Right? It's like, <laughs> so it's like, it's a new day. So, uh, so the environment that you put yourself into is going to influence your behavior. That's what it means, a, a good neighbor. But on a deeper level a, good, a, a level, a good neighbor, you see, is also your thoughts. Because your thoughts are very close to you. And it's very important to have positive thoughts. Because if you're always telling yourself you're not good enough, you're bad, you don't deserve anything, you're a loser, right? If, if this is the tape that you're playing in your head, this is the definition of a bad neighbor, right? So, so a good neighbor on a deeper level means that you're thinking positively, that you're giving yourself strength. See, everyone on, the, everyone on some very profound level has the ability to be their own best friend. Right? You, you can be your own best friend. But in order to be your own best friend, you have to make sure that the thoughts that you have in your head are very positive. And that they're spurring you on to action by telling you that you're, that you're good enough, that you're worthy. And then if you fall down, you go, okay, so we'll try again. We'll do something else. We'll, we'll make it work. Some way, somehow we'll make it work. One way or the other. Okay, so... Rabbi Shimon says, one who considers the outcome of a deed, that this is the most important trait. In other words, you want to you wanna make a good path in life? You got to have a plan. And you got to figure out, you know something? I want to be president of the United States and I'm going to begin my campaign by getting drunk this morning and not getting out of bed. <laughs> well, you're not really considering the outcome of that deed, are you? <laughs> Because the outcome of that deed is not going to be advancing your presidential campaign, is it? So, so a person has to figure out, okay, you know something? This is what I want to accomplish in life. Now, how am I going to do it? If I sit around the house watching TV, that's not going to get me closer. You know? If I want to be a writer, i got to be writing. Right? If I want to do X, I've got to be working in that field. I've got to be doing, I've got to be working in it, I've got to try. So someone who's thinking ahead, right? This is the, the, the best plan. This is Rabbi Shimon. Rabbi Elazar says, a good heart. Ah, we're back to a good heart. And now, Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai, right? Whose students these were, who were all giving their... their uh, their, their, their versions of what's the best quality to pursue. So Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai says to them, I prefer the words of Rabbi Elazar ben Arach to your words, meaning a good heart, for your words are included in his words. In other words, someone with a good heart is someone who's going to have a good eye. Someone with a good heart is someone who's going to be a good friend. Someone who has a good heart is going to be a good neighbor. Someone who has a good heart is going to anticipate the repercussions of their actions. Right? 
That's what it means. And so simultaneously, it's very interesting because not only is it saying that a good heart is the best thing, but Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai is giving you the definition of what a good heart is. It's all of these things. You don't have a good heart, you have to do all these things. That's to have a good heart. Okay. But now I want to I want to go back to the Sefer Yetzirah now. <laughs> and just take this into a Take this to the z-axis now, okay? So, so, um, so, if just as background for this, what I'm about to say right now, if you want to understand it better, um, I recommend last week's talk, uh, the Hebrew alphabet and creation, and and also uh, the cosmic reach of the Torah. Those are two separate talks that will go into this much, much deeper and give you a background for what I'm about to say, but we're just going to kind of jump into the deep end right now. So, so, so a good heart includes everything. Now, Lev is the Gematria 32, right? It's Lamed Vez, right? Lamed is 30, Vez is 2, that's 32. So, a good heart, Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai says, includes everything. So I'm going to show you on a Kabbalistic level how he's talking about how the entire universe is actually contained within a good heart, within the heart, right? Because it says at the beginning of Sefer Yetzirah, there are 32 paths. 32 is Gematria Lev, Right? So in other words, if you want to start to diagram or chart the entire universe, there are 32 pathways, right, which are going to lead you to the parameters, so to speak, of the universe from these 32 pathways. And the word path, path, is um, nitivot, right, plural. And they say that, they point out that that, that Nativon is, is the Gematria 462. Now, what we said last week was that if you take the olive base, if you take the Hebrew letters, and you do two letter combinations of every variation, right, except the letter with itself, so in other words, you wouldn't do Aleph and Aleph. You do Aleph and Bez, Aleph and Gimel, Aleph and Dalit, right? So you wouldn't combine a letter with itself. So since there are 22 letters, if you want to know all the different combinations, it would be 22 times 21, because you wouldn't combine a letter with itself. And that adds up to 231. So there's 231 different combinations. And we have the above aspect of that, and the below aspect of that. And when you add up 231 twice, you get 462, which is the gematria of Nativon, which means paths. So, again, let's review. There are 32 pathways, and these 32 pathways, pathways adds up to 462, which is referring to all the different letter combinations of the olive base used for creation, Above and below, 231 above and 231 below. Now, interestingly, 
we had this concept that we talked about last week called Albam. Albam is from the Gomorrah. Albam is a letter of exchange system where you take the top 11 letters of the olive base, remember they're 22, and then underneath that you put the next 11 letters. So under Aleph would be Lamed, the first letter and the 12th letter, right? That spells Al, right? Then Bays under the base would be Mem, the second letter, right? And the second set of 11 letters, if you will, right? That would be the 13th letter, right? So Al Bam, and that's shorthand for these two stacks of letters, these two rows of letters. Now that's referring to the upper worlds and the lower worlds. And it hit me that that that's like Albam is like a gartel to the universe. What's a gartel if you don't know what that is? A gartel is something that men wear during prayer. And I have a thought about why women don't in a second, but that men wear during prayer, that you, it's like a belt, and usually it's like a, a, a silk, made out of silk, usually, and you tie it around your waist when you pray, and this separates your above from your below. So Albam is like this gartle separating the above and the below, the 231 above and the 231 below, Albam is separating this, so in that way it's like a gartel to the universe, the upper and lower worlds. Now, isn't it interesting that a human being is compared to a miniature of the universe? So we have our gartel, the universe itself has its gartel, Albam, right? So why, why wouldn't a woman wear a gartel, right? So... I don't know, this is just me offering an explanation. But it, isn't it interesting that, that that would be the area where the baby would be? <laughs> In other words, whereas men have some sort of level of um, separation, a woman is this amazing holistic construct which, which just brings the above to the below without any problem. There's continuity. Right? Because, you know, uh, the soul comes from on high and it just flows through the woman and all of a sudden you have a baby. There is no separation. Whereas a man doesn't have that level of continuity that a woman has. Right? So, so to put the gartel around a woman's belly would almost be like a bit of a contradiction. But a man does have that division, so it's appropriate for a man. Now listen to this. What did, what did we just say? Because this, this is wild. We just said that there are 32 pathways. And these 32 pathways, the word pathway, nitivot, is 462, which is the 231 above of all the different possible letter combinations above, two letter combinations above, and the 231 below, right? 32 pathways. You want to hear something amazing? The coin Gadol had a gartel 
that he would tie around his waist. This is what it says in the Torah. And it tells you how long it should be. It was 32 amos long. Thirty-two, what did we say? There are thirty-two pathways. Pathways is the word nativot, which is 462, the 231 above and the 231 below. The Kohen Gadol, who was really encompassing all of Israel, right? And Israel, the word Israel, Yisrael, Yud Shin is Yesh, that means there is, there is in possession. Resh Aleph Lamed. Resh is 200, Aleph is 1, Lamed is 30. Yisrael means there are 231 different combinations of the Aleph base. So the Kohen Gadol, the high priest, who's representing all of Israel, ties this gartel around his waist, right? separating the above and below, because there's 231 above in the universe and 231 below. And he does it with this gartel, which is 32 almost long, which are the 32 pathways separating the 231 above and the 231 below. And of course, 231 is Yesh, is Israel. Yesh, Ra'am. There are 231. So when we say that everything is contained in the heart, everything is contained in the 32, the 32 pathways which encompass the entire universe. And we said last week, just say it again, now this is a different paradigm. This is now approaching it from a different angle. So just put the previous thought aside for a moment. Now let's hear it from a different angle. The Kohen Gadol, again, the Kohen Gadol, who's representing Yisrael, Yesh, 231, Ra'el, 231, right? He would take the Hoshin Mishpat, the breastplate, and he would put it, it says in the Torah, that he's to, he's to take the Hoshin Mishpat, which contained all the letters of the Olive Bays, right? He's to put it where? Over his lave, over his heart, so again, we have lave, which is 32. 32 is accessing all the letters of the olive base, which were on the breastplate by intention. They made sure that, that but dafka, they made sure that all the letters of the olive base were there. So over his heart, which is 32, he had all the letters. And again, he's accessing the entire universe, right? All the elemental elements encompassing all the pathways, all, if you will, the divine wiring of the universe, right? Because when you see the charts of all the different combinations of letters, it's almost like you're looking at an, almost like an engineering manual at that point, right? So he's accessing all the divine wiring of the universe, right? And bringing blessing and purity to, to, to all of existence. So what does it mean for us to have a good heart? What are we doing with our hearts Right? Remember, because it gets deeper. It's, it's unbelievable. What's the last letter of the Torah? Lamed. What's the first letter of the Torah? Vez. Vez. The Vez of Reshit, which is still the letter Vez. Number two. It's 32 again. It's heart. 
right? And what do we do on Simcha's Torah? We finish reading the Torah, and then we start reading the Torah right away to make a circle, the Lamed into the vase, right? So you see that the entire Torah is contained, right? What did Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai say? Everything is contained in a good heart. Right? So you have there the heart. You have the life right there. The entire Torah is contained within the heart. So what does it mean for us to have a good heart? What can we accomplish with a good heart? You know, we talked about it, but we just have to say it again because it's so awesome. Yosef Hatzadik, Yosef, one of the greatest people that's ever lived. He's in the lowest place in the world, Egypt. He's in prison. He's in the lowest place in the lowest place of the world. And he sees someone who doesn't look so happy. Who would look happy in an Egyptian prison? Right? Right? Even today, who would look happy? Right? Much less back then. And, and yet this, because of Yosef's good heart, because of the purity of his heart, this was meaningful to him. So he walks up to the prisoner. He says, what's the matter? You look sad. Is everything okay? And the person says, well, you know, I had a troubling dream last night. And what happens? He interprets the dream. And then he gets a reputation as a dream interpreter. And then Paro has a dream. And then he interprets Paro's dream. And then he's able to save the entire world from starvation. Yosef saves the entire world from starvation. Why? Because he saw someone who looked sad and he walked over to them and said, is everything okay? That's a good heart. From a good heart, the entire world gets saved. So, God should bless us all, right? That we should have a good eye. Everyone's news is good news for us. Because we all share the same soul. We should be a good neighbor. Tell yourself, I love you. (laughs) No one loves you more than me because I'm you. (laughs) Except God. God loves you more. Okay, but I'm number two. Right? To be a good friend, right? You're willing to go out of your way for someone else. To think ahead, I have a goal. I have a goal. Is this next thing that I'm doing getting me closer to my goal or further away from my goal? Right? So all these things are to have a good heart. And then just to to love. Right? And to understand in terms of our own amuna that when the sea split, we could have thought, oh, that's the wind or that's God. God will always give us in our lives, whenever he does something good for us, he will give us the opportunity to ascribe that good thing that just happened to our own power or to God. God will never take that free choice away from us. God gives us that choice every day, every moment. Are we giving ourselves the power or are we giving God the power? Right? And that we have to understand that in order to believe It's not just to believe that God exists, to believe that God is good. And like the Rashbam says, that God is providing for us, that God is taking care of us, and he's with us in our future endeavors. And then 
Have a great week. <laughs> <laughs>